season. 27 years old, 6'4", 225, Blake Snell. Yeah, he's been awesome and really has a chance to quiet the power of this Dodger lineup. Swing and a miss, he struck him out. Blake got it by him, one away. Struck him out swinging with a high fastball at 97. Two men away. He's been able to utilize all four of his pitches and get swings and misses on all of them. He struck out the side. You can't do it any better. One in the center and the number nine man, Barnes, is aboard with one out in the sixth. Man, you talk about a short leash. 73 pitches, two hits, nine strikeouts. Snell can't believe it. Duda bets a hanger that's drilled to deep left center field and gone! Maybe the finishing touch. win finally the wait is over the dodgers are the champions of 2020 there's a news story tonight as we showed you earlier justin turner we announced when the show began justin turner was pulled from this game uh just before 10 o'clock 9 49 local time in arlington we were told after the game he tested positive for covid so this is turner obviously informed okay he goes back he finds out uh, well, at some point afterwards, he was back out on the field with a mask on, took a picture with the team. And welcome back to another episode of The Final Call here on Radio Massasoit. Episode number 51, Andrew Fantuccio, Ben Mamaritas, and the man with the easiest name in the Zoom, with some weather to match, Mr. Jason Snow. Guys, how are we? Doing good. Jason Snow. How you feel about the snow, my friend? I like. You know what? Snow and I have a weird relationship. You know, I, I love to hate it sometimes, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad it's here. It's a winter wonderland out there. Dodgers win their first title in 32 years, first since 1988. How does this championship change the narrative of this era of Dodgers baseball, and what does it mean for the city of L.A.? Ben? What does it mean for the city of L.A.? Uh, I mean, man, right now it's a good, good time to be alive if you're an L.A. resident and you are a fan of all things sports because, I mean, check it out. LeBron and the Lakers win a title. And then a few weeks later, the Dodgers win a title. It's looking really good for Dodgers fans. I need to pump the brakes, though, because they're starting to call themselves a city of champions. Let's not get crazy. Boston is still a city of champions, and that, that is not biased at all. That's just facts. Um, but how does this affect the Dodgers? You know, it gets the monkey off their back, for sure. I mean, you look at the two World Series that they lost. They lost to the Astros. Then they lose to the Red Sox, both accused of cheating. You know, and then it's like, oh, can they ever get back there? Can they ever get that monkey off the back? They finally did it to a pretty good Tampa Bay Rays team. I mean, you know, on the show, we kept saying how great the Rays were this season. So, you know, they definitely earned this. Um, they played really well. Clayton Kershaw finally, you know, putting a stamp on his legacy. You know, he, he's probably going to be a first battle Hall of Famer. And, you know, Mookie Betts also winning his second World Series. So, this was a big win for the Dodgers and a huge win for LA as a whole. Yeah, no doubt. Big for the city, but I'm, I'm going to touch on something a little big picture. And I think it means the Mookie Betts deal was worth it. And even like, even the extensions worth it because if they go 12 years and they, you know, make a couple runs, but they don't necessarily win a title, they can look back at this year and just go, it was worth it. We got a title out of it. We finally got a title. And it, I think it's an immediate return on their investment. Like they find they got the results they were looking for. And now can they repeat it? That's another question. And and I'm sure Andrew's going to go more in depth about that because I think that roster's got some really young, nice young talent and they can obviously lure some free agents to put the icing on the cake for that. But just right now, they got an immediate return on their investment. They know they know the Mookie deal was worth it for them. They got a title. They finally got a title after a couple of years of, you know, getting close. Dave Roberts' job was arguably on the line. They got it done and it was worth it. And, you know, this whole boomer bust thing, Clayton Kershaw got their title. It, it, it just fit and it, it was worth it for them. 
and I I think it justifies the Mookie deal and the extension for the for the next twelve years. They got the title. That's all that mattered. You got the championship. It erases all that pressure that the Dodgers were facing over these last what you know three or four years since twenty seventeen. I guess. I mean, I don't know if it justifies the Mookie Betts deal yet. I mean, it's a twelve year contract. This is a young roster. Um, they should win more championships. They should. But if they don't, and you only got one title out of it, I mean, that's way down the line, but I'm not ready to just nail that one in there yet, Jason. But just for this, they're no longer failures. They are finally able to get it done and didn't crumble underneath the enormous amounts of pressure they're facing this season. You know, the Dodgers, one of the most historic teams in the history of baseball and maybe professional sports, they're now officially a 21st century team. Their first title in 32 years, first since 1988. Championship has won through expert roster construction, being in tune with new school and old school philosophies, and, and great play on the field from every single guy on the roster. It brings prestige back to the franchise, and it certainly elevates their status in the L.A. market. You know, It's a, still a Lakers town, obviously, but this championship means a ton to that city. Um, but I guess if you're going to pick out guys who it means the most to on this Dodger team, Clayton Kershaw and Dave Roberts are it. Are they now forgiven for their past failures in the playoffs? Yeah, I, I think they are. I mean, Kershaw, this is the biggest thing for him. Like we said um, in an episode with me and you, Andrew, Clayton Kershaw for you had to be the reason that they won. And he didn't necessarily do that because he didn't pitch in that final game. But for me, I think he gets over the hump he'll always have that little stain but i think he used a little bit what's that uh, tied out that he, you like rub it out and it kind of gets out i think there's a little residue there but it's not as big as it once was they finally won a title but for for clayton kershaw it's like he'll he'll always have that those memories of those sour performances but it, it's not gonna be the definition of his career in a way it won't be those performances defined who he was as a player. He was like, he finally got a ring. That's all that mattered. Yeah, I mean, Clayton Kershaw definitely, like I said, he has the monkey off his back. He played well in the games that he did play in. I mean, this postseason. So, you know, there, there's that to go off of. But yeah, I mean, those, those past performances, those are always going to linger. But the, when you win a title, it means something. And for Clayton Kershaw, this, you know, this puts him in the discussion of, you know, one of the great pitchers of not only this time, but of all time. So, you know, the kind of the ring justifies a lot of things for Clayton Kershaw, in my opinion. So it was super important to him. And this was, like I said, this, this was this was huge for his legacy, for sure. I mean, Clayton Kershaw, to me, he was already the greatest pitcher of his generation. He's a three-time Cy Young winner, one-time you know, won an MVP one of those years as well as a starting pitcher. Uh, was it two no-hitters? A perfect game. Clayton Kershaw is was a first ballot Hall of Famer before this title. Yep. But this just kind of locks it up for him. No, he didn't have the true playoff performance that he needed to really change everyone's minds. There's still going to be people who say he still could have get done in the playoffs. That 20, uh, 20 championship, yeah, he pitched you know well, but he didn't. He wasn't the reason they won. Well, he's not the reason they lost like he was in the past. Last year in Game 5 against the Nationals, Clayton Kershaw was a big reason why they blew that lead. Right? So he didn't fully erase it, but he's, he's making the turn. Now, will he ever get back here? I mean, what, Kershaw's, what, 35, 36, I think? So, I mean, he's on the tail end of his career, but just getting a title just only cements him even more on that top pitchers of all time list and even Dave Roberts. I mean, how I said that Dave Roberts should have been fired after the season. If he didn't win a championship. Yes, he did. Dave Roberts finally learned how to not do too much and just let his players play. I'm not an anti analytics guy. Obviously this championship was won in part because of analytics for the Dodgers, but in the biggest spots, baseball is still a human game. And Dave Roberts finally learned that lesson. He went out and he let his players play. And that brings me to this point. And Ben, I want to start with you here. What were your thoughts on Kevin Cash blowing Blake Snell early, and how does it affect your view on analytics and sports? It was a bonehead move. And as we all know on this show, I am not a baseball expert, okay? I am not a baseball savant. 
all right? But even I know when you got a pitcher out there and he's on a heater and he's just he's striking guys out left and right, only allowing two hits on, what was it, 73 pitches, you keep him in. You keep him in. That's just smart coaching. But, you know, the analytics people would get on me about that and say, well, you know, you got to take him out. I thought it was a very knee-jerk reaction by Kevin Cash. Doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. You know, and in my opinion, it cost him the game and it cost him the World Series. I think if you kept Blake Snell in there, his momentum was huge. And we say on this show all the time how big momentum is and how much that means to sports. So all the momentum was sucked out of the Rays clubhouse when that happened. And from then on, the Dodgers just rolled to a victory. So that was a really, really, really bonehead play by Kevin Cash. But I mean, at first I I was calling for his job. I don't, I mean, I don't think it's a fireable offense, honestly, because other than that, I think the Rays were in a pretty good spot. But that was just, it was a knee-jerk reaction. It shouldn't have happened. And I think the Rays would have had a better outcome if he just stayed in the game. I, I agree. I mean, it's boneheaded. I, But at the same time, I don't mean to be devil's advocate or anything, but when when it's game, like this should be a, a rule for all coaches. If you're down in the series, especially in the World Series, but if you're down in any series, keep rely on your stars. Rely yes. on your stars. That would have that's a spot to me as a as a if I were a baseball manager to keep Blake Snell in for too long rather than cut him short. And and I'm not gonna pretend like he just handed the ball off to some random reliever. He gave him to like he gave the ball to his closer in the sixth inning, who was pitching well in the World Series, but uh, come on, like Say, all right, in this scenario, say you go Blake Snell for eight innings and he pitches lights out and you win that game. That would have been an opportunity to save your bullpen another day for game seven. Like, I don't understand the philosophy behind, let's have Blake Snell pitch six. He's going to throw 73 and we're going to use our bullpen. Even if we win, we're going to have a tired bullpen in game seven. I don't understand, and especially in this series when you let Tyler Glasnow throw 112 in game one. Yep. I don't understand it. Like, I understand you, you manage differently when your back's against the wall versus a game one where you're trying to set the tone. I understand that. But that's a moment in game six, down 3-2 in a series against a lethal lineup where Mookie Betts and Justin Turner didn't necessarily swing the bat all that well against Blake Snell. You keep Blake Snell in for longer rather than cut him short because ultimately at 73 pitches he's not going to be at full strength on game seven the next day. He's not. You're not going to get the most fresh Blake Snell in a, in a possible game seven. So he has, like, he has several months to recover before training even starts next year. Use him. Use him fully. And I don't care if you let off a double to Mookie Betts. I don't, let, I don't care. Keep Blake Snell in the game. Keep your stars in the game. Rely on your stars when your back is against the wall. Absolutely a dumb decision. Stupid idiotic uh, for Kevin Cash to pull Blake Snell while he was dealing 73 pitches, two hits, nine strikeouts, five and a third. And he was about to face the top of the Dodgers order who hadn't been able to touch him all night. I screamed at the TV when I saw Kevin Cash walking out to the mound. I screamed at the TV because I knew this, the Rays are going to lose this game now, but I don't blame Kevin Cash for doing it. I understand the move. The Rays are a team that have been completely built on analytics. And what do analytics say? Analytics say that starting pitchers struggle for the third time through the order. Kevin Cash is just going with his bread and butter. Analytics is what got the Rays to this point. Mm-hmm. I disagree with the move. I wouldn't have pulled him because Blake Snell was untouchable that night on Tuesday night in game six. But I understand the thought process. It's what got them there. Why abandon it now? I went back and looked um, through every single game that Blake Snell pitched this season, going back to the regular season. He only threw more than 75 pitches in five games. The mm. Rays have not used Blake Snell deep into games all that much. And now I don't know if that's something to do with Snell, if that has to do with their philosophy, but that's where I scratch my head because, Jason, you brought it up. You want some sort of consistency. Why let... Blake Snell only goes 73 
pitches in game six facing elimination, but then you let Tyler Glasnow throw 112 and get shelled in game one. So you need that consistency. I don't understand it, but Kevin Cash has been using that strategy all season long. It would not have made sense for him to abandon it now in the biggest moment. So I understand that thought process. It's his first World Series. It's something that we saw Dave Roberts learn back in 2018 against the Red Sox when he pulled Rich Hill too early in game four of that series. Now it's time for Kevin Cash to learn. I still think the Rays are a good team. I'm not, you know, throwing uh, – I'm not using Kevin Cash as a scapegoat right now. He made a bad call. Happens. But the Rays are still a good baseball team. Doesn't stain them for me at all. Now, what might stain the Dodgers, unfortunately, is still 2020. COVID's still going on. And we just couldn't make it through this World Series without someone getting COVID. Justin Turner tested positive for COVID in the middle of game six, pulled in the seventh inning. I want to ask you guys, and then returned to the field after the game for a celebration. I want to ask you guys, who is at fault, if anyone, and should Turner face any sort of discipline for this? First of all, Major League Baseball is under a microscope right now for this, in my opinion. This was a totally lack of awareness, you know, out of touch. What are we doing? What are we doing? I say, what are we doing a lot on the show? But again, what are we doing? (laughs) I mean, you have a guy who tests positive for a virus that, again, I cannot emphasize this enough. No one knows how it works yet. You pull him out in the seventh inning. You tell him, hey, listen. You have COVID. You can't go out to to celebrate with your team. I'm sorry, but like that's just that's just a stupid decision. Why would we let you do that? And apparently, uh, he emphatically said no, and that he wanted to go celebrate with them. Okay, fine. Say, listen, I'm sorry that you really want to, but you have COVID nineteen, which is a very lethal virus. Sorry, it's like can't can't really do anything about that. Like you're like the Major League Baseball should have said, listen, our hands are tied. You need to go back to the hotel. You need to go home. You need to go wherever. But no, they, they just let him do what he wanted. They were just like, all right, you know what? Yeah, you're fine. What's the worst that could happen, right? Not only was he going out on the field hugging everyone and, you know, you know, uh, with his wife and everyone was out there on the field, you know, everyone's families are on the field. He was taking his mask off for pictures. And he's positive for COVID-19 in the group picture of the Dodgers when they took the picture with the trophy, there was a big picture with the entire team and he was sitting there right smack in the middle with his mask off and everyone else had their masks off. Next to Dave Roberts is a former cancer survivor. Exactly. Exactly. And who knows how many underlying conditions that all these other players have in their families and so on and so forth. It was incredibly careless and it was just, it was, I just can't believe it happened. I mean, in the world that we live in, everyone is so careful with this virus. It will at least everyone, to my knowledge, in high positions have been very careful and very uh, safe about this virus. But with the, this was just a complete lack of awareness and it was completely out of touch by Major League Baseball. I think, you know, Justin Turner definitely needs to realize what he did. Major League Baseball needs to figure out what they're doing because they clearly haven't figured it out. And, you know, the Dodgers, who knows what the Dodgers are going to do to this, but I'm just waiting to see what kind of repercussions come from this. But yeah, the, I'm just, I hope there's not a spike, but if there's a huge spike for the Dodgers team, that's, that's a big deal right there. I'm totally on board with that. It was a total misjudgment. And honestly, we talked about this in the group chat when, (laughs) if that happened, like the reports came out, he like disregarded security. If that happened in a bank robbery, and the police were chasing you, and then you know, they were like, hey, bring that money back. And he was like, no. And then the, the police would just be like, all right, well, go enjoy your money. Go, go enjoy your riches. That, exactly. That would, that would not make any sense. But I do have a question, and that is, how did he even get COVID in the, in the first place? Because we saw in the NBA, that bubble, seal tight. Nobody was allowed in. Like, nobody in the entire three months of the NBA got COVID. In the bubble. And once you were in there, you couldn't leave. Not a one. How did Justin Turner ever get COVID? How seal tight was that baseball bubble? How, like, how did that even happen to begin with? And second of all, when the reports came out that he, was, that he got it and um, was removed from the game, why was he still in the ballpark? Why, why was he still in the locker room? 
Doesn't exactly. everyone know like everyone would be going into the locker room after the game? Like if someone has COVID, get them away. Get them, like you said, maybe a hotel. I don't care. Bury them underground. Like I don't care. <laughs> get them away from everyone else. And, and it just makes me question how we even got it in the first place. How seal tight was that bubble to begin with? And it, it, maybe it's a lack of, lack of detail. I don't understand. But the judgment from MLB, from Turner himself, from security, to everyone in the ballpark, you let it get away. You, you, you let COVID in. And I think that's inexcusable. I mean, obviously, this bubble wasn't very tight. I mean, they were letting fans in. Yeah, can it be they were letting they were letting fans in. Yeah. So I don't think it matters where he got COVID. The fact of the matter is he got COVID. You know, and I I don't blame someone for getting COVID because it's we know so little about this virus. You know, we don't know how long it lasts on surfaces. We don't know how we know it's easily spread between people without you know if you're not wearing a mask, you're not socially distancing. We know that, but Justin Turner could have just touched a doorknob and got it. Like, it, I, I don't, I think it's hard to assess blame for contracting the virus because it's so easily transferable. Yeah. You can blame someone, though, for how they react and how responsible they are once they have it. Yes. See, we can blame MLB. We can blame the Dodgers. Like, why are you letting him out there? Why is no one saying anything? Were the Dodgers just like, hey, Justin, you can't be out here. You, you got to go back. It's like, no. Nah. Like, okay, have a great day. Congratulations, by the way. Do you want me to take that picture for you? They could have done that. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, we say all the time in this world, you are responsible for your own actions, right? You are responsible for your own actions. Justin Turner consciously went back out on that field. Consciously. It was his action, his decision. And I understand I understand it. It's something he's it's probably the biggest moment of his life, maybe outside the his marriage and the birth of his children. And it's something he's been dreaming of since he was a little kid. But during these times, it takes an extreme sense of responsibility and morality to get through this. And Justin Turner didn't show it there. I understand the, nece- the, uh, the need and the want to go celebrate with their teammates. Justin Turner is the heart and soul of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Absolutely. I feel for him. I, I get how much he wanted this. But you need to just take a step back and say, there's things right now that are bigger than baseball. It, and that's a hard call to make, but in these times you have to make those hard calls. And that's where ultimately I blame Justin Turner more than anyone else. Coming up next after the break, some moves in the NBA, new hirings, a lot having to do with the Houston Rockets, a new head coach in Houston. Mike Daryl Morey finally found a job. Even Mike D'Antoni found a job this morning. Our thoughts next here on the final call. Back on the final call. New names in Houston with the Rockets. They've just signed Steven Silas as their new head coach. Jason, how does this fit your mall theory? What do you think of the move? Oh, it fits like a glove, Andrew. It, it, I love this hire so much. You know, he specializes in guard play. Uh, he coached Luka Doncic, who just came off an MVP caliber season. Kemba Walker, who was a multi-time all-star back in Charlotte. Uh, Steph Curry, like, I'm not saying he's going to, you know, resurrect James Harden and, and Russell Westbrook styles or anything, but this guy, he's not, he's maybe a first time head coach, but he's been around the block a few times. He's been an assistant for like 20 years. His dad's uh, legendary Paul Silas, um, who was a former head coach in the league for quite uh, some time. Paul Silas was also a player as well. So this guy knows basketball. Like I know he's not a flashy name, Houston fans. I know he's not Doc Rivers. I know he's not Mike D'Antoni. He's not Stan Van Gundy, Andrew. But he's <laughs> Steven Silas. He's he was on the Rick Carlisle staff last year, and Luka Doncic said he's really gonna miss him, and his game is really gonna have to evolve post Steven Silas. Like Steven Silas got Luka Doncic comfortable with the NBA game, and. I don't necessarily know a ton of like X's and O's like style wise, whether he likes to push it, whether he likes to slow it down methodical James Harden style in the playoffs where he dribbles 28 times a possession, but either way, this guy knows what he's doing. I, I, I love the hire for Houston out of all the jobs. I was kind of circling Houston as a guy that 
as a coach that needed like a championship pedigree coach that has been a head coach on a championship team, but simply that coach doesn't exist on the market right now. Cause guess what? Everyone say it with me now. They all have jobs already uh, <laughs> on the open market. So you got to go with your next best option and a guy who f- specializes in guard play, I think is a good bet with two guards that historically struggle in the playoffs. I think it's a good move. Yeah, 100% agree. When I first heard the the news, I said, Steven Silas, who's that? And that fits Jason's mall theory absolutely to a T. So I, I am with you, Jason. And, you know, upon further investigation, like you said, he was with the Mavs under Rick Carlisle, worked a lot with Luka Doncic, uh, worked with Kemba and Steph, like you said. Now, I do think this is going to help Harden and Westbrook. Now, I don't think he's going to, you know, quote-unquote, resurrect their careers, per se. But I think you're going to see their strategy change a little bit just because they're so used to the, you know, under Mike D'Antoni, it was all about three-pointers and analytics and, you know, layups for twos and three-pointers everywhere else. And, you know, I think James Harden kind of turned into, like, that matador where he's kind of like the, you know, He's just trying to confuse a player at the top of the key above the three-point line with a bunch of dribbles and then just shooting it. You're going to see a lot more ball movement, I think. Um, Forget the small ball, right? Like, you're going to see a lot more actual basketball being played as opposed to this new wave of analytics, which I love that. I think that Westbrook and Harden are really going to benefit from this. Learning from a guy, like you said, has been around basketball for pretty much his whole life they're going to learn from this. And, you know, I think the Rockets are still going to be a team to look out for. Now, I still don't think they're going to make a lot of noise in the playoffs come playoff time. But I think they have a better chance than when they were under Mike D'Antoni. I I love this hire. I love the move. I really do. Silas has nearly 20 years of NBA experience in the NBA, uh, basketball experience in the NBA. He's praised by basically everyone he's ever worked with and is known as one of the most meticulous coaches in the league. The guy also happens to have a degree in sociology and management from Brown University, which means he understands how groups of people coexist and how to manage them. That sounds exactly what the Rockets need right now. Exactly. Someone that can go in and kind of work with the personalities and understand and coexist with Russell Westbrook and James Harden without being more of a, without being a babysitter, but being a friend, being a mentor. Somewhere that they can go to, not only uh, that can cultivate them as people, but as players and as a team. So I love the move. And Ben, you brought up an interesting point. I mean, this is a new era in the Houston Rockets franchise. How different do we think that this team is going to look under this new regime of Silas and new GM Raphael Stone from their old one with Mike D'Antoni and Daryl Morey? It's going to be different. And I think it'll be a good different because I think James Harden and Russ too are pretty rigid personalities, especially when, you know, they have to collaborate and like, they, they like to do their own things, but like year after year after year after year with Mike D'Antoni and Daryl Morey, it was just time for a reboot. I don't know if they were necessarily rolling their eyes, but I think that might've been a possibility that they might've been a little tired of the same old song and dance every single year. So I think it's, I think it's good for, uh, to have some new blood, especially as a macro topic NBA finally getting out of the head coach carousel where, oh, he just got fired. Oh, he'll, he'll just get hired two days later. Get some new blood on the sidelines. I, I think, you know, to get a guy that Harden and Westbrook both, I think, will have respect for. And that'll be the big thing when you're coaching stars. You need respect on the sideline. And we'll, we'll touch on that a bit later with other coaching hires. But Steven Silas will demand respect. And like you said, Andrew, I don't know if a friend is the right terminology, but he'll, he won't be a coach. He won't be a run suicides. He won't be, you know, daunting or anything. He'll be a good guy to coexist with those two stars. I love the move. And I think a reboot was honestly a good thing. Even though they got to the playoffs so many years in a row, they could never get over the hump and they had enough tries. I think the one thing we're going to see is that this is not a general, like a complete move in the opposite of direction of D'Antoni. This is not a move away from analytics in terms of a complete 180. There's still going to be an influence of analytics. It'll still be there, but it just won't be as strong. But we're, but we're going to see the biggest change with the Rockets. They're going to become a much more methodical team. 
They're going to take the identity of the head coach. And the one thing I've read about Steven Silas, incredibly methodical and meticulous. He is like Bill Belichick. There is no stone left unturned in terms of scouting, in terms of preparation. And that's what I think we're going to see happen with the Rockets on the floor. You know, instead of just getting out in transition and running the floor on every possession and trying to score as many points as possible, I think Silas is going to use more traditional style of basketball, at least compared to D'Antoni. It's going to bring, it's going to benefit both Harden and Westbrook by hopefully not burning them out three quarters through the regular season. And hopefully they can make a further push into the playoffs. Because what do we always say? Yeah, they score a lot of points, but they always get tired and they can't play defense. I think that this is what's going to help. It's not going to take away from their offensive capability, but Silas was going to help at least round out both Harden and Westbrook's game. And before you jump in, Ben, um, quick to note, Mike D'Antoni in a lot of those playoffs games wouldn't adjust at halftime. His, his speech would always be, let's keep what we're doing. A lot of those co- the coaches that he was facing would adjust. That, that was the, one of the main criticisms of Mike D'Antoni during his time in Houston. He would never adjust, and now they get a guy that likes to pivot off, off things that might be working at certain times but are struggling. He's willing to pivot off of it. I think it's a great move. Ben, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I agree with both of your points. And with, with Steven Silas, I mean, you look at Mike D'Antoni, and to your point, Jason, he would never adjust. And it was, I think that was mostly because Mike D'Antoni was set in his ways, right? It was like, oh, it's Mike D'Antoni's system. We're going to do Mike D'Antoni's system, small ball, analytics. We'll figure it out. We'll be fine. You know, we have the skill to do it. We have the players to do it. Whereas Steven Silas will adjust. And he will make these, you know, halftime adjustments, you know, from quarter to quarter. And if we're looking at, you know, Harden and Westbrook, I think Westbrook's development is going to be a lot better going forward than Harden's with Steven Silas. I think Harden has a much more refined game than Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook has a very raw game, right? I mean, he's up there and he's not exactly a rookie, but his game is very raw. Like, there's, it's a little rough around the edges. He really hasn't added anything to his toolbox since coming into the league. Right, and, you know, it's, I think with Steven Silas, a methodical guy, maybe he can add a few more things to Westbrook's game to kind of roughen out or to smooth out the edges a little bit because, you know, I think that's going to really help Westbrook going forward but I mean Harden's definitely going to benefit too but I'm looking at Westbrook I think this was a big uh step up from D'Antoni for Westbrook so D'Antoni's now an assistant under his former player in Brooklyn Steve Nash how much influence will D'Antoni have on the Nets this year to quote Michael Scott oh how the turntables anyway you you guys never seen the office I have, but what's the quote in reference to? I've seen The Office. But. He tries to say, oh, how the tables have turned, but instead he goes, oh, how the turntables, and then he like doesn't finish the sentence because he's an idiot. Anyway, it's Michael Scott. Anyway, I just find it funny because Mike D'Antoni was the coach of Steve Nash, and now he's working for Steve Nash. That's just funny to me. Anyway, point is, the first thing I thought of was, seven seconds or less, are we going in that direction? Think about it. The last time we saw these two guys together, it was the seven seconds or less Suns with Steve Nash, multiple-time MVP winner during that time. They had Amari Sotomayor. You know, they have a seven-footer in Kevin Durant, but he's not a down-low, like, beat-em-up guy like Amari Sotomayor was. He's more of a, you know, he can shoot from anywhere. Then you have Kyrie Irving, you know, running the point. Who's going to be the leader of that team on the court? That still remains to be seen. I think it's going to be a really different approach in Brooklyn. Now, I think analytics and three-pointers are still going to be huge in Brooklyn because that's a big part of D'Antoni and Steve Nash. When Steve Nash was a player, that was a huge part of his game as well. I think that hiring D'Antoni was kind of Steve Nash saying, hey, I remember what we did in Phoenix and how well it worked. And if we just build on that, with these players that we have and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, we could make some waves in the Eastern Conference. So that's what I think this move was. I like it. You know, I just, I hope they don't go too far into the whole analytics thing. Cause I think, you know, when it comes to analytics, Kyrie is one of like those players that really doesn't work with analytics. Kevin Durant sure can, but I, I don't know about Kyrie. So, but that's just going to be interesting to see. But I, I think it's an interesting move for sure. 
I unleashed maybe one of the biggest belly laughs I ever, ever had when I saw this news come out. <laughs> ever. Kyrie Irving, earlier this month, quote, I don't really see us having a head coach. KD could be a coach. I could be a head coach some days. Now they have four head coaches on their coaching staff. They have four head coaching caliber coaches on their coaching staff. Steve Nash, who's their head coach. Jock Vaughn, who would have been a head coach had he not received big money from Brooklyn. Mike D'Antoni, who's a head, cal- um, head coach caliber coach. And Ime Udoka, who just joined the staff with D'Antoni, I think is a head coach caliber kind of guy too. We don't need a coach. Now we have four. I don't understand what this team is doing. Like, buy into something. When you say something, believe it. And, and I can't believe, like, this team is going to have a problem with knowing where to point to. Because in, in Golden State, you know where to point. You point to Steph, you point to Steve Kerr. Historically, you point to Doc Rivers. You, you point to Phil Jackson. You point to Greg Popovich. You, you have a direction. I feel like this team has too many cooks in the kitchen. I, I, I don't understand why you would have four head coach caliber coaches on your staff when you're argue like your second best player, maybe your most influential player, just came out earlier this month and said, we don't really need a head coach. What, I, blows my mind. I think that might sum up their reign in Brooklyn where it's head scratching weird, but they might do well simply because of their sheer talent. But Ah, and now Amari Stoudemire is joining the lit. This goes against everything against my mall theory believes in. It makes me, it makes my stomach turn. I don't understand it, but (laughs) you invite five coaches that, you know, might get head coach consideration after your best, your second best player just said, we don't need a head coach. Oh God, makes my, it's a headache. Kyrie Irving is a headache. I don't understand. To be fair, to be fair, you're right. You're right. Kyrie Irving is a headache, but he says things that he doesn't mean a lot. Yeah, that's that that just Kyrie just wanted to be Kyrie and just spewing crap. Yeah, I mean, think about it. He was like, he was like, oh, I plan on resigning with Boston. If you guys will have me, everyone cheers. And then a few months gone. later, he's gone. And then you know, he said he wanted his number to be retired in the rafters. Gone. And don't his, don't right. take his Cantor warrant forty five minutes yeah, later. Don't take don't take what he says into consideration. All right, I I, I want to move on to Daryl Morey now being in Philadelphia because I mean you, the same thing can be said I think about what the Sixers are doing there. What does addition mean uh, for the organization? I think it just shows that Philadelphia is desperate. They went with a big name head coach, now a big name executive. They're actively trying to escape the process and make some sort of real noise in the East. But I think they're just doing it all wrong. They need to be patient. They need to cultivate a real roster around Ben Simmons and around Joel Embiid. But they're they're shotgunning it. They're going too fast. Daryl, they're and the problem is they can't get there because they're in cap jail because they have Al Horford and Tobias Harris on bad contracts. So if that's the case, why bring in Daryl Morey, whose biggest move with the Houston Rockets was trading a truckload for Russell Westbrook that put them in cap jail? So I just feel like it's a step sideways, not a step forward or backwards. And it's like they're trying to make noise. They're trying to get publicity, some attention around this team. But ultimately, is Dar- what moves is Daryl Morey going to be able to make? I don't really know. Like, I just don't see the Sixers being able to go anywhere unless they, you know, unless they blow it up again. You know what this move said to me? Desperation. Thank you. They see it slipping. They know they have to decide between Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid eventually, but they're just prolonging yeah. the decision. They're, they're, they're waiting it out. I don't understand why, but like you said, Andrew, they're trying to make the most of these pieces. And it, they're probably in a similar situation to Brooklyn in the fact that they have too many cooks in the kitchen. Doc Rivers is once had you know personnel responsibilities with the Clippers. Then Elton Brand's technically the GM, but wait a minute, Daryl Morey's overseeing the operation. But wait a minute, we love analytics as Daryl Morey does but neither of your two best players can shoot. And then all of a sudden, it's a headache. And it, it's going to unleash in chaos, but I don't understand it. I guess, you know, Philly wanted to hire Daryl Morey before he went to the Rockets, but now it's just too late. And it's, they're a sinking ship that tried to patch it up with duct tape. And I don't mean to refer to Daryl Morey as duct tape, but I don't see this move paying off. It's just a bunch of noise. And they know they're going to have to make a decision. They just want a last-ditch effort to see if it can pay off, and I don't think it will. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about the Rockets and how Harden and Westbrook, like Westbrook's not really an analytics player, 
Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are like the last people you want if you're trying to make a team based on analytics. One guy shoots a mid-range, which is a dying shot in the in the NBA. The other guy can't shoot threes. Hello, what that's like that's that is like the two things you you need in a in an analytics team. Now, Daryl Morey, his bread is buttered with analytics, and you guys are absolutely right. This was a desperate move, and. They're going to have to choose between Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid. I still don't know who I'd pick. My gut leans towards Ben Simmons just because he's younger and has less injury history and he's in better shape more consistently. But, man, this is – I think you're right, Andrew. I think they're starting to get away from the process a little bit. I don't know if they're trying to get away from it as much as they're trying to speed it up. They're like, this is taking too long. The process is taking too long. They're trying to move away from it. They, they, they want to be out of the process. They want to be, you know, at the top of the East. Well, yeah, they that's what I'm saying. They don't want to do it for real. They want to do it just based off publicity and off names. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. They're, try, they're, trying trying to, to, they're trying to escape it. Yeah, I, I guess. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, they're not as much trying to get away from it as they're trying to speed it up. But they're in doing so, they're, making them, they're shooting themselves in the foot, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like. It's like, oh, like we got, you know, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons are going to be the core, right? Blah, blah, blah. We got we to develop them. We got to develop them. And they're just trying to get Doc Rivers, trying to get Daryl Morey. I don't see that making them, you know, Celtics are going to be there. The Heat looked really good this year. The Bucks are going to be there as long as Giannis stays. I, I don't know. I, I just don't know with this team. I don't. It's, it's a really sticky situation. But, yeah, I, the Daryl Morey thing scares me a lot more than the Doc Rivers, for sure. Desperate move. We are in desperate times as the NFL season charges on week eight this weekend. What teams are in the most dire straits? Who's the most desperate heading to week eight? Our thoughts next. This intro music is brought to you by Ben Mamaritas. Yeah. All right, week eight, halfway through the season, a lot of critical games. A lot of teams' seasons hinge on their games this weekend. I get, oh, for the sake of puns, who's under the most pressure this weekend to win? So you don't like the song choice, Andrew? Why? I like the song. But it's like, can we, can we be above this? Jason, we, what do you think of the song? Every, every single time someone wants to do a segment about pressure or being <laughs> desperate, everyone goes to Queen and David Bowie. And they're two of the greatest musical acts of all time. I love both of them. But come on, can we just be more creative and think a little bit more outside the box and under pressure? Jason? We're not past corny. And second of all, Andrew, I love how you called them musical acts and not artists. But that, that's a discussion <laughs> for another show. Um, but yeah, we're not past corny yet. I mean, if, if stadiums can play the Jeopardy song when the refs are deciding whether the call stands or not, we can do this. We're, we're not past corny. We also have a segment where we routinely use a soundbite from SpongeBob SquarePants, so I don't think we're above that. <laughs> SpongeBob SquarePants is a classic. Okay, well, we can use Queen and David Bowie as far as I'm concerned. All right, fine. What was the question? <laughs> Who's what? What's the most uh, marquee game this weekend, and what teams are the most pressure to win? I'm gonna go with a team that is very near and dear, close to my heart, all of our hearts actually, and that's the New England Patriots. Two weeks in a row, you put up stinkers. Okay, the first one was a little better than the last. The first one against the Broncos, you didn't give up a touchdown. Great, good job. You still gave up six field goals. Okay and still lost the game. That was just abysmal. Cam didn't play particularly well. Fast Brandon forward. McManus for MVP. Yeah, yeah, good noodle. Yeah, okay. Um, and then you fast forward to against the Niners in Foxborough, a team that is completely ruined by injuries and should not have had any business to win that game, and yet they went into Foxborough and punched Bill Belichick and Cam Newton in the mouth. Um, the receivers cannot get open. The receivers just let's just call it like it is. They are not good. Belichick has had a bad, bad history of drafting and trading for receivers. That's just fact. That's not hyperbole. That is fact. He is he's terrible at drafting receivers and trading for them. And then Julian Edelman, you know, just came off of surgery. He's not going to be playing. Cam Newton looked absolutely terrible in that last game. He was throwing balls into the dirt, throwing them where nobody could get them. His mechanics were all over the place. It looked like he regressed two years 
in the two weeks that he was gone from COVID. Okay. He just, he looked absolutely terrible. This is a bounce back game for him. And he said on the post game press conference that, you know, losing isn't acceptable in this locker room. And he's right. The Patriots have gone 20 years of nonstop dominance. And this is the worst start so far of uh, in the Belichick era. Can Cam Newton and the rest of this team bounce back from this? I mean, the defense looks terrible. The offense looks terrible. The O-line is completely just all over the place. They need to play well in this game or it's looking bad in New England. It is, it is looking – it's almost panic time for me for New England. And Jason – I know what you're going to say. Say it loud. Nope. They're not. I still don't think they're going to go 5-11. and 11. I still don't. I, listen, I don't think they're going to win the division. I had them winning the division. That was foolish of me. I admit it. But the Patriots definitely need to figure it out. This is a bounce-back game for them. They, they need to win this game. Before I you know, unleash, Andrew, you're on the 5-11 and 11 train with me? Because last time I checked, everyone called me a lunatic. I'm getting dangerously close to it like i'm i'm more like you know seven and nine six and ten at this point like i yeah. dangerously close i'm closer than ben is if they lose this game and depending how bad it is if they lose i'll be right there with you i'll get my conductor hat i'll, I'll pull the whistle and everything like okay all right but if they do go five and eleven ben this will be the greatest achievement in my entire radio career until i retire this is the greatest call in the history of jason Jones' career anyway I agree. The Patriots are under the most pressure to win this weekend. But it's not by a lot because there's another team that faces almost just as much pressure and they're going to be taking the same field as the Patriots and that's the Buffalo Bills. Bills have to win this game. They have to, have to, have to win this game because ultimately, this is going to make or break my Super Bowl tier. If they, they can be in the Super Bowl tier if they take care of business this weekend because going back a couple weeks they got blown out by the titans understandable they were they were you know switching game plans between preparing for the tennessee and kansas city because they didn't know who they're going to play because of covid but then you go home and you lose to kansas city by more than a touchdown and it's not really pretty and the weather advantage was yours and you were at home Eh, it wasn't pretty and then a week after the the day i said if you're betting the jets game Whatever the spread is, pick against them. You only beat them by eight in your home state. This, and, and this is the game that might be able to put the Patriots away in the division. This is the, seal, this is the make or break game for the Bills. Are they pretender or are they a contender? Because if you look at that schedule, look coming up, you have the Seahawks. Coming up, you have the Cardinals. Coming up, you have the Chargers who can really hang in some games despite being, having a losing record. Then you have the Niners who just clobbered the Patriots. Then you have the Steelers. Like, when does the schedule lighten up for Buffalo? This is the game you have to win if you want to put the Patriots away. So, and there's a lot of pressure in that. So I'm going to go with the Bills at number two, but the Patriots are number one in my opinion. I'm, I'm with Ben. Very strong case there, Jason. I didn't, I didn't think the Bills. I didn't think. The team that I'd say is under the most pressure to win this week. I mean, how can I not go with the Baltimore Ravens, Lamar Jackson? Strong case. And probably... I think the game that should be the Sunday night football game because having this Cowboys and Eagles on Sunday night football this week is should be a crime to me. Yeah, it's a crime. Gross. Anyways, Steelers, Ravens, top two defenses in, in the NFL. Ravens are five and one. Steelers are six and zero. Oh. The Ravens' offense has been, I mean, hasn't been bad, but it's not at the level it was last year. I think we can all agree Lamar's having a not. A slump, but he's taken a step back compared to his 2019 year. Can we agree with that? Yeah. I would say just with the moves they added, trading for Ngakwe, he's going to play this week. Signing Des Bryant, there's a lot of hype around this team. They're a game back of the Steelers in the division. I don't think you can give the Steelers any more momentum than they already have. You're at home, so the pressure's on you to win. Steelers have nothing to lose here. You go on the road and you lose at Baltimore, great. I mean, you know, you can't blame them. Baltimore is a good team, but if Baltimore loses at home, yeah. I, I have to say after the year that Lamar Jackson just had with the division on the line against your arch rival, for me, it's Baltimore. They're under the most pressure to win this week. I mean, and there's, there are other honorable mentions. You can look at the game uh, coming up in later in the day. You have Cleveland and uh, Las Vegas after the week that uh, Baker Mayfield had against the Bengals. You can say that, you know, Cleveland's five and two. Baker's played above expectations this year, but he's yet to have that season-defining game. 
that game that makes you feel like, okay, he's finally got it down. He's finally understanding it. And I think this game against uh, Vegas is a true make or break one, especially because it it's going to have playoff implications. This could make or break a wild card spot for one of these two teams. And that's an interesting point too, because Baker Mayfield just lost his best receiver for the rest of the year. How is he going to respond to that? Right. Odell goes down with the ACL injury. And I, I kind of want to go back on your point about the Ravens, Andrew. What do we always say about Baltimore? They're really good, but when they play against a good team, can they hang in there? Can they play from behind? Like if the Steelers go up 14 points in the first half or by a touchdown in the first half, can Baltimore play from behind? Because like we always say, we say that they can, you know, with a lead, they can play really well. But when they're behind, they have, they have struggled getting their feet out from under them. So that's what I'm looking at. Because the Steelers right now, their defense is for real. You know, how are they going to contain Lamar Jackson? I mean, he's probably the hardest quarterback in the league to contain. How do you keep him in the pocket? How do you force him to make throws from the pocket? That's going to be the number one key to, to beating them. But I'm with you, though. I, I mean, you got to look at the Ravens and say, can you win against good teams? And the Steelers are in their division. Like you said, I mean, this also has playoff implications as well. So, yeah, I, I like the Ravens pick for sure. Yeah, and it's, like you said, Steelers don't have much pressure. I mean, whenever you play Baltimore, there's pressure because it's in division, but not as much pressure as Baltimore because, like, we already know what Pittsburgh is, really. Great defense. Like you said, Andrew, before the season – really good defense and i i don't want to misquote you what did you say about their defense it was like one of the best in steeler history which is high praise yeah i did say that. i would say it could rival that of the steel curtain yeah i it's right there with it and i doubted you on that because i thought that was like really high standards but it, it's it's coming to task i mean if they can go into baltimore this week and they can shut down lamar jackson keep him under 100 yards from scrimmage i mean that's that would be a real statement that would absolutely i mean they went into Tennessee last week, and they shut down Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry had a rare bad game. Mm -hmm. Derrick Henry was a non-factor against Pittsburgh last week. That's adding on to when they shut down Saquon Barkley. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that defense is for real. But I'm going to touch on a team that I'm not very high on in comparison to other teams, and that's the Saints. And I I sold my stock on the Saints several weeks ago, like dating back to, like, last year's playoffs. I was done with them. I didn't want to touch them. Uh, But now they go into, into Chicago, and that's a that's a game where both teams are under a substantial amount of pressure. I mean, sure, Chicago's 5-2 and two right now, but does anyone really buy them? Uh, I think a home win against the Saints, you know, might improve their stock. And then for the Saints, like, are they treading water right now? I mean, they, they won against the Panthers, but it was closer than everyone expected. And then, you know, they come out flat against Detroit, but that was off a two-game losing streak. And then, uh, I don't know. I don't know about the Saints. And Michael Thomas isn't going to touch the field again. That's a game to circle on, on a lot of people's calendars, a, lot, a game that's flying under the radar. I think both teams are under a substantial amount of pressure in that one. I completely agree with you because I was going to just argue the same point, but from the other side, I think the Bears have a lot to say. Yep. I think they have a lot to answer for. There, there are a lot of teams in this week that are like 5-2, and 4-3. It's time to separate the men from the boys. Who yes. are the real teams? And this week's going to decide it. And I think Chicago is one of those teams that has to answer that question. They stole a win against the Bucs a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, they look good against bad teams, but let's see what, if they're really for real. If they can get to 6-2, and two, I mean, they're in a wild card spot. They could conceivably compete for the division. I mean, I don't think they stack up against the Packers, but, I mean, they at least are within fighting distance. They're mathematically within reach. You know, they've replaced Mr. Trubisky with Nick Foles. Nick Foles has done a serviceable job. That defense is legit. You have – I just want to see, are they for real? Mm-hmm. What teams this weekend can prove they're legit? I think another team you can put in that category, San Francisco against Seattle. In Seattle, on the road, the Niners got to make uh, have to answer some questions. And they've performed above expectations when you consider the fact that how injured they are. Mm-hmm. Their injury list is just – it's like a CVS receipt. Miles long. Yep. You know With what I mean? Coupons and all. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So you, it's time for the Niners. They had a good win against New England last week where they just made New England look like a Pop Warner team. It, it's, the 49ers got to step up. Uh, I'm, I'm looking down the list. I mean, you, I, 
we really want to get into the trash that is the NFC East. The Cowboys and Eagles are playing for the division this week on Sunday night. Puke. <laughs> you know, I, just, I, I have another. Can I jump in real quick? Yeah, go for it. And, and Ben, I, I want your spin on this because, you know, this might, you know, cut deep on you. Mm. Another team, and maybe an, an individual facing a lot of pressure in his reputation this weekend. Can Brady beat the Giants? Good God. Can you finally do it? Shut I mean, up. Seriously, like the Bucks. I mean, yeah, they're playing well, and, and Brady's not past his prime, but um, – and, and Ben, you oh and I. Oh, my God. Why do we me, always end up here? Don't, don't take me seriously because I'm, I'm on the Brady train with Ben, but I'm just uh, cracking a funny on him. Can Brady beat the Giants, Ben? Can he do it? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm glad you asked me this, Jason, and this is, this is why, you know – we love having you on the show because you always ask the important questions <laughs> and, and this is, this is his time. Listen, the New York football giants caused one of the two worst days of my life when they beat us in 2007. And then in 2011, both of those games, Brady, uh, well in 2007, he got ransacked by Justin Tuck and Michael Strahan. That's I, I still have nightmares. Put them to bed. They suck. Daniel Jones can't run 80 yards without falling over himself. Let's go. I'm so ready for that. Tom Brady's, by the way, NFC Offensive Player of the Month, by the way. Tampa Bay, baby. And that, so he was AFC Player of the Month a slew of times, and now he's NFC Player of the Month? Wow, how many players can say that? Whew, what a guy. I did this on purpose. Greatest athlete of this generation, if you ask me. Can I just say I hate both of you? Hey, if he loses this weekend, I mean on Monday, that'll be uh the only be a way the, the only way the Bucks lose to the Giants is if they beat themselves. That's that's the only way the Bucks lose. And on a serious on a serious note though, that's the only way the Bucks lose games is when they beat themselves with penalties, undisciplined football, not knowing the downs, not yeah. knowing what down it is. Yeah, like they they beat themselves and that's what happened with the Bears. Mm-hmm. So, but then when everything's cooking for them and the defense is playing, everyone's flying to the football they win games like they did with the Packers. They made the they embarrassed Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. So, yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, no, I don't think the Giants stand a chance against Tampa Bay. But we'll see. One I, more game I want to I want to explore before we wrap this up. I think okay. uh, I think there's pressure on the Dolphins here to beat the Rams. I know. I mean, I know it's a tough tall task, but you name two of the starter. You're three and three. You're second in the division. Another take of Jason's that's kind of looking it's looking like he might be right. Yeah, spot on per usual. Yeah. <laughs> up listen but you start Tua right it's, it's his first start he only what he threw two passes in garbage time last week and they just named him starter out of nowhere I mean let's see I mean Burrow is a top three in passing this year as a rookie we've all praised Justin Herbert on the Herbert on the show it's time for Tua to, to approve like is he really over that injury is he an NFL caliber quarterback against maybe a, a top five defense in the NFL in the Rams at home, I, there's pressure on the Dolphins here, I think. Yeah, I think there is some pressure. I mean, you look at the Rams. They're coming off to uh, – or they just came off a win against the Bears, correct? Wait. Yep. Yes. And, I mean, we talked about the Bears, but the Rams are kind of one of those teams where I'm like, can they beat the good teams? You know, they, they lost to the 49ers two weeks ago, a game that I thought they should have won. The Dolphins definitely have some pressure. I think Tua has a lot of pressure because it's Tua time, regardless of you know what Ryan Fitzpatrick thinks. So I like Tua going into this. You know, I think he he can get past the the injury woes, but we'll see. And I have high hopes for Tua. I hope he does well. Before we wrap, though, I usually don't root for for people or against people, but. This weekend, consider me a fan of the Giants because I really want them to beat the Bucks, and I want Tuesday's show Why? to be hilarious in the lead. That'd be <laughs> hilarious. That'd be the greatest lead of a show in history. That that would be amazing. Daniel Tony, Jones man. runs all over the place. I would laugh hysterically if that happened. Daniel I, I Jones hope it does. Twenty three miles an hour on. Dude, this show would be lit on fire if that happened. Like scorched earth. Consider consider it just a, a mayhem. It would be great. I, oh, I hope it happens. Tuesday's show is going to be a banger. Yeah, well, and that's about all the time we have for this episode of The Final Call. As always, you can find us on our podcast page, your podcast, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
if you're interested in doing some reading, make sure you check out newenglandsportsunited.com, written by the one and only Jason No, and scoreboardtimes.com, written by myself. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FinalCallMCC. For Jason Snow, for Ben Mamaritas, I'm Andrew Fantuccio. This has been the final call on Radio Massasoit. There must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the